I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America, chartered by Congress, to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And this is an important podcast because it's in commemoration of Constitution Day 2017, which is the 230th anniversary of the U.S. Constitution. And it also marks the launch of an exciting National Constitution Center initiative, a Madisonian Constitution for All. With this wonderful commission, co-chaired by the heads of the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society, and by senators and representatives of both parties, we will explore on this podcast and over the coming years, what would Madison think of our current presidency, Congress, courts, and media, and how can we resurrect Madisonian values of public deliberation today? Joining us to discuss these incredibly important questions and to launch this exciting initiative on Constitution Day 2017 are two of America's leading constitutional scholars. Stephen Calabresi is Clayton J. and Henry R. Barber, professor of law at the Northwestern University Law School. He is a co-founder of the Federalist Society, a member of the National Constitution Center's Coalition of Freedom Advisory Board, and he has written extensively about the Constitution, including in his latest book, The Unitary Executive, Presidential Power from Washington to Bush. Dean Vikram Omar is dean of the University of Illinois College of Law and Iowan Foundation Professor of Law. He writes regular columns for Judicia.com and many other publications and has published widely on all matters of constitutional law. Steve, Vic, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Steve, let's jump right in with this central question. James Madison saw a tension between populism and constitutionalism. He had studied the failed republics of Greece and Rome and concluded that direct democracy could lead to demagogues and the mob. And he thought that only a republic could guarantee the thoughtful deliberation that he believed was necessary for the preservation of the rule of law. What did Madison mean by a republic and what kind of thoughtful deliberation did he have in mind? Yes. Um, James Madison spent the winter and April of 1787 reading uh, probably about 200 books that Thomas Jefferson had shipped him from France on republics from, and democracies from ancient Greece and Rome up through modern times, trying to discern lessons from them. And one of Madison's principal concerns, which he expresses in Federalist 10, uh, the Federalist Papers being papers written to support the ratification of the Constitution. Uh, one of Madison's uh, main concerns in Federalist 10 is with the evils of faction. And by faction, Madison meant what we would today call self-interest self groups. And Madison said that the problem with constructing a democracy is that there will be very many interest groups trying to bend it to their own purposes. So there'll be manufacturers who want tariffs, there'll be importers who don't want tariffs, there'll be farmers who want dairy price supports, there'll be consumers opposed to dairy price supports, uh, the rich will have one set of interests and the poor another set of interests. And Madison thought that the great danger to democracy was that a faction would get a hold of 
the legislature and run the country for its own interests, and that would lead to the end of a republic. And in the Federalist 10, Madison proposes two cures for the problem of faction that he thinks the United States Constitution would provide. First, he argues that because of the huge size of the United States, even when it was only 13 colonies, it seemed quite huge to people at the time, he argued that in such an extended commercial republic, you would be able to find a number of men of ability who could be elected as representatives to go to Congress and to deliberate. And Madison felt that representative democracy was quite critical. He was uh, he thought direct democracy had led to ruin in ancient Athens. He would have been opposed to referenda or initiatives. But he thought that representation would filter out the popular passions and uh, would help to dilute their influence on the country as a whole. Um, he also thought that expanding the size of the United States, and he envisioned significant westward expansion of the United States. He also argued that in a large republic, there would be so many factions that no one of them would be a permanent majority faction. And so he saw in the extended size of the American Republic an additional protection against the evils of faction and direct democracy uh, or of uh, in initiatives of some kind or another. And uh, one of the things that's mentioned about Madison that is ironic on this fact is that once Madison was elected to the House of Representatives, he and Thomas Jefferson together built the first and oldest political party in the whole world, which is the Democratic Party. And so some people have wondered whether Madison abandoned his concern for faction by starting the Democratic Party. I think he thought that he had not done so because the Democratic Party was a large umbrella organization that comprehended many factions, just as its opposing party, the Federalist Party, was as well. And so James Madison, on the one hand, is the person who warns us most of the evils of special interests and factions in government, and yet he recommends a secure representative democracy, an extended commercial republic, and then also the creation of a two-party system. Thank you for that extraordinarily lucid and helpful introduction to the question at hand, namely what would Madison have thought of contemporary American democracy. Vic, I want you to respond to Steve's uh, outline and ask you, was Madison correct? And what would he make of our current democracy? This is a world where the breadth of the internet uh, seems to have vastly expanded the extended republic that Madison had in mind, and yet far from electing people of ability, we have more of the direct democracy that he feared uh, and we also have not. We also have a decline of political parties that no longer represent umbrella organizations, but instead seem to be the kind of ideological interest groups that he most feared. So, as you look at some of these uh, structural changes, like the decline of parties, and technological changes, like the rise of Twitter mobs and rule by initiative and referendum, how does it square with what Madison predicted? Well, I think the world has changed a great deal. 
But one thing, uh, even going back to the founders' era, to note is that although there was a distrust of some elements of uh, populism and direct democracy, and certainly the federal government does not operate uh, by uh, initiative or referendum, part of the genius of the Constitution, too, was the way it empowered states to uh, deviate from the federal model and to experiment with their own uh, aspects of governance. And I don't know that uh, Madison would have thought that the federal constitution forecloses states from uh, undertaking direct democracy. There is a provision in the constitution known as the Republican Guarantee Clause, but I agree with scholars that the term Republican in that context is used to connote majority rule, not just um, representative government. So the kind of direct democracy we see um, in the West, especially in states like California and Oregon and Colorado and the like, I think is in, in complete keeping with the federalism design of the Constitution that Madison and the other framers uh, uh, built. Uh, and uh, although there are certainly problems with populism, and it can descend into uh, mob mentality, um, one of the big problems uh, that we have with so-called representative government today is another uh, change, uh, changed feature that, uh, in addition to the list that you provided, Jeff, and that is the influence of money in politics. So you, you combine um, the uh, undue influence that, that a relatively small number of large donors have and you uh, add that to uh, the, the districting manipulation, the gerrymandering. Jerry, uh, Elder Jerry was, a, was a, a, one of the, the founders. And it's not clear to me that, that populism and direct democracy, as, as kind of problem-plagued as they may be sometimes, uh, is necessarily worse than, uh, than elected representatives operate today. So I'm not... So the world has definitely changed, uh, and we have, we have a lot more diversity in the way government operates around the country, but I'm not sure that Madison would look at the world today and think that our biggest problem is having initiatives and referenda uh, in certain states, um, because there's a lot of aspects of his, his expectations that probably haven't been borne out, especially in the last few uh, decades. Okay, great. Thanks. Thank you for that. Steve, lots on the table, but I guess I'll ask you to um, respond to my question about whether the Madisonian predictions that you identified in your first comments, namely that men of ability would rise in an extended republic and that uh, representation would filter out popular passion, has that been borne out in the age of the internet Twitter mobs and the decline of the uh, political parties that Madison had in mind. And then, I guess, do you agree with Vic that at times uh, today, uh, direct democracy can be less of a threat to thoughtful deliberation than other democratic vices like money and politics? Sure. And um, yeah, no, these are great questions, and it's wonderful to debate them with Vic, who I greatly admire, and with you, who I greatly admire. Um, let me start with partisanship in Washington today. And um, I think one of the first things I would mention is that although there is a lot of partisanship between Republicans and Democrats in Washington today, the Republican Party 
is actually a coalition of 50 state Republican parties and the Democratic Party the same. And so we, well, one of the things that we've noticed in recent times is that although there are 52 Republican senators and although the senators have been running for years on a platform of repealing Obamacare, they were simply unable to come up with a bill that 50 of the 52 of them could all agree on to accomplish this goal, which they cherished and argued for for a seven-year period of time. And the reason for that is that Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska uh, are on the left with respect to health care, whereas, for example, Rand Paul and Ten of Kentucky and Ted Cruz of Texas and Mike Lee of Utah want to get rid of health care altogether. And I have huge admiration for Mitch McConnell as a Republican majority leader. I think he's I think it's a miracle he got 49 votes for a bill that was in many ways fatally flawed and uh, probably better not passed. But the the Republican Party is, a, is an umbrella organization. It's a coalition. And I think Susan Collins has more in common with um, some Southern Democratic senators like Claire McCaskill than she does with Ted Cruz and Mike Lee and Rand Paul. Um, that's, uh, and I think that's true on the Democratic side of things as well. Um, in terms of partisanship in Washington itself, um, I think that it goes back to the Clinton administration when, under what I believe was the misguided advice of Bill Kristol, a famous political commentator, Kristol argued that the Republicans should just uh, vote against anything Clinton wanted to do so as to cause his presidency to be a failed presidency. And the Democrats, I think, then to some extent followed suit during George W. Bush's presidency and now uh, during uh, the uh, Trump presidency is a high level of partisanship. Um, I think we need to rebuild a tradition where people work across the aisle and try to adopt bipartisan legislation. I do want to say something about initiatives and referenda at the state level. I agree with Vic that initiatives and referenda at the state level are constitutional. The Supreme Court held as much in 1912 in Pacific uh, Telephone and Telegraph Company against Oregon. So I think initiatives and referenda at the state level are perfectly constitutional. But I, would, I think the results of initiative and referenda at the state level have been uh, very distressing. Uh, more than 30 states held referenda on whether to legalize or ban same-sex marriage. And I believe in every popular vote except for one, a majority came out in favor of banning same-sex marriage. That was true, by the way, in California, where Proposition 8, which overturned the California Supreme Court decision legalizing same-sex marriage, passed with 53% of the vote. Uh, a number of other referenda in California have, in my view, been very destructive. Uh, California passed a referendum outlawing affirmative action in public universities uh, by a narrow margin. 
Uh, I think that was very destructive. I don't think we should put civil rights questions like same-sex marriage or affirmative action up for a vote. I think those questions should be decided by representatives and by courts. Uh, other things in California were, that were done by referendum have also been very damaging. Uh, California, by referenda, limited the terms of office of its state House and state Senate members to six years. And the net result is that state senators and representatives so, know so little about the government that they're completely beholden to the lobbyists who swarm around Sacramento to try to figure out what to vote for. So I think that was harmful in California. I think Proposition 13 slashing property taxes really hurt what had been California's fabled education system. So I, I think I'm most in favor of initiatives and referenda when you're asking whether to issue bonds to build a bridge or to build a highway or something of that kind. But I'm much more skeptical about them when you're putting up for decision essentially the question of whether same-sex couples or minority groups are going to have the same recognized status as others. Uh, thanks for that. I want to turn to each of the four branches of government in a moment and what the founders would have thought. But Vic, I, I'd like to just hone in on the question of uh, the, 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 Matt, Madison's fear of uh, direct democracy, uh, as we've been discussing, was that it would lead to passions and the mob. What what structures did he and the founders think would promote thoughtful deliberation, and how have they been challenged by technology and other constitutional changes today? Well, I think um, Steve is certainly right that uh, we have a kind of a loss of, of deliberation and uh, uh, recognition of common ground that characterizes the last few decades. I'm not entirely sure why we have uh, lost the, the glue that would knit uh, Democrats and Republicans together on Capitol Hill to be able to really deliberate the way Madison uh, wanted them to. I do think uh, primary elections and campaign finance are a big part of it, because if you look at the way people get elected in D.C., um, you know, there's a tendency because of the money that drives primaries for the ultimate candidates in the general election to represent the right wing of the Republican Party and the left wing of the Democratic Party. And it's obviously harder for those folks who are far apart on the political spectrum uh, to recognize commonality and to work together for, for common solutions. Now, I should say, uh, also, that's not itself necessarily inconsistent with Madison and other founders' expectations in the following sense. Uh, you know, the, the constitutional design is a pretty conservative one, by which I mean uh, the framers really did tend to think the status quo was worth preserving unless there was broad consensus to adopt policy to move in a different direction. Think about the fact that you need both the House and the Senate and the President um, to, uh, to get together before a law can be enacted, uh, or you need two-thirds of the House and two-thirds of the Senate to override a presidential veto. That means the President and, and 34 senators, so 35 of the 500-some people 
elected in D.C. can block the will of the other 500. So, that's, again, that's a, that's a generally conservative premise. So, too, is the, the idea that uh, the House, the Senate, the President, and the federal judiciary all have a, a, an ability to block implementation of some law or policy if they believe that that law is unconstitutional. We, we have a bias in favor of inaction. And for most of American history, I think that wasn't such a problem. It's just that today, because of changes in technology and globalization, there may be a more urgent need for the federal government to tackle some big problems. And letting them uh, fester for a decade after decade uh, may put us uh, behind the eight ball. Um, I'm thinking of things like climate change and the like. Uh, so, we, you know, the expectations may not have been um, uh, wrong about what would happen. Congress wasn't a very active player for the first hundred years of the Constitution, and maybe that's what the framers expected. But the stakes are higher today, um, and so uh, and so uh, we feel a little bit more more edgy about it. Um, so, what could we do to bring people together? Uh, I, I don't I don't have any you know brilliant ideas beyond those that others have talked about. But as I say, I do think. The way we elect officials, the, the campaign finance uh, and, and the like, um, is, is a big part of it. And that brings me to the final point I'll make before uh, turning it back to you, Jeff. I agree with Steve that initiatives have, in recent decades, um, been used to accomplish some purposes that I find um, less than desirable. And I grew up in California. I was a professor at University of California before I came to uh, University of Illinois. So I lived through Prop 13, property tax, and lived through um, Prop 187, which was an anti-immigrant uh, measure, or Prop 209, which banned affirmative action, or Prop 8, which tried to prohibit same-sex marriage. But there are other um, examples of a, a better use of initiative devices. So, for example, one of the reasons we have directly elected U.S. senators in Washington, D.C., because under the original Constitution, senators were elected not by the people, but by the state legislatures. One of the reasons we got the 17th Amendment to move in, 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 to enshrine direct, democ uh, direct election of, of U.S. senators is because states like Oregon had initiatives that essentially uh, tied the hands of state legislators to select as U.S. senators the candidates that the people themselves wanted. So using direct democracy for, for beneficial election reform, um, moving in the direction of, of public finance of campaigns and the like, or moving in the direction of a national and popular uh, election for the president, the so-called National Popular Vote Compact, I think that's kind of using initiatives in, in their most uh, um, uh, uh, beneficial ways. Many thanks for that. All right, let us turn squarely to what would Madison have thought of Congress? Steve, uh, Mattis, as you note in your phenomenal essay on the interactive Constitution, uh, Madison thought that Congress was the most dangerous branch, most likely to be a vortex that would accumulate power. But he turned to several solutions for this inconveniency, including a bicameral national legislature, uh, two different houses, which by different modes of election were as little connected as possible. Further safeguards he identified against legislative outreach uh, were an absolute negative on the legislature in the form of an executive veto. And then he also endorsed a congressional veto on state legislation, which he thought would uh, be 
uh, a great check as well. Tell us about all of those and broadly describe what Madison expected of the original Congress. Sure. Um, before that, let me just say I agree with Vic. There have been some very good initiatives in American history, and the ones that led to popular election of U.S. senators are at the top of the list. So I, I certainly agree with him about that. Um, I think with respect to Congress, um, Madison, uh, the, Ma- Madison was very driven by the experience of the Virginia legislature between 1776 and 1787, which uh, elected governors for a one-year period of time, had partisan brawls over who to pick to hold federal offices, and just generally uh, misbehaved in in, uh, striking ways. I I think Madison thought that um, legislative factionalism could be curbed by having a bicameral legislature. Originally, Madison proposed that both the Senate and the House be picked on the basis of population. The small states, New Jersey and Delaware, insisted on equality of states in the Senate. Um, I think that's worked out reasonably well. Um, I think Madison also thought that the president should nominate appointments uh, subject to confirmation confirmation by the Senate uh, because his experience with legislative appointments to office was that there was a lot of horse trading and intrigue, and he thought higher quality appointees would would emerge from presidential nomination and senatorial confirmation. And I think that's largely worked out. I think uh, most of our cabinet secretaries and Supreme Court justices have been very able people. And the federal model of presidential nomination and senatorial confirmation is far better in the field of judges than the state model of electing judges or even than the state model of turning to merit selection panels to pick, uh, to pick judges. I think that the problems that Madison did not anticipate that are affecting Congress now are first a problem that Vic mentioned, which is primaries. Uh, primary elections are a relatively recent development. Uh, I remember the presidential election of 1968, and there were fewer than 10 primaries that year. Uh, most delegates to the National Convention were picked by state party leaders. Um, primaries have become widespread, both for picking presidential nominating convention delegates, but also for senators and congressmen. And unfortunately, what that means is that if you're a senator or a congressman, you can only lose if you're a Republican to someone who runs to the right of you, and if you're a Democrat to someone who runs to the left of you. And this is particularly true because of the gerrymandering of congressional districts. Um, Probably 80% of the House districts in the country are safely Democratic or safely Republican, only about 20% of them, maybe, or maybe 30%, are genuinely contestable. And in that overwhelming majority that are, over, that are safe Democratic or safe Republican seats, the only way an incumbent can lose is in a primary to someone who's more extreme than he is. And so I think that's produced a House of Representatives where uh, the middle is very, very small, 
and a substantial majority of both the Republican and the Democratic caucus are governed by the extreme wings of the Democratic and Republican parties. And people in the middle trying to put together coalitions that will actually secure a majority vote uh, find it very, very difficult to do that. And so I, I think that's I think that's a, that's a huge problem with the House of Representatives. Um, until 1928, Congress, by statute, required that congressional districts be compact. Congress has power under Article One, Section I think it's Article One, Section Four, or Section Five. Congress has power to legislate as to congressional districts, and I think that it. Sh- that we should reintroduce into federal law a compactness requirement. I think that just as one person, one vote is justiciable, I think compactness is justiciable too. I mean, we all know what a weird-shaped district looks like and what a compact district looks like. And if we have to give up a little bit on one person, one vote to get compactness, I think we should do that. I think that would produce more genuinely competitive districts and a less polarized House of Representatives. I think with the Senate, um, I think that the Senate has uh, adopted a series of procedures over the years that are disabling. Um, I think the ability of individual senators to put holds on nominees indefinitely uh, is a huge problem. No individual senator should be able to do that. Um, I think the ability of senators to ref- refuse to return a blue slip for a judicial nominee uh, for their state uh, is an unwarranted veto and is a problem. Uh, I must say, I am not a. I would support doing away with the filibuster in the Senate altogether. Um, I think if a party wins a national election the way the Democrats won in 2008 or the way Trump won in 2016, I think they should have a fair chance to implement their program, and then if the voters don't like it, uh, the other party should get a chance to come in and change the program. So... The filibuster is not provided for in the Constitution. It grew up as a matter of custom going back to the 19th century. There used to be filibusters in the House of Representatives, but they were abolished at the end of the 19th century. I think we should abolish filibusters in the Senate, and I think that would do a great deal to improve Senate races. Finally, on the subject of campaign finance, I think that there should be substantial federal funding of candidates for uh, federal office available. I wouldn't exclude private funding, but I would make substantial federal funding available so that candidates can, can in fact, be heard. Um, I don't think that the mere fact of having a lot of money necessarily guarantees that you're going to win an election. Um, I know of some very generously self-financed candidates who've gotten crushed. Uh, In Rhode Island, Senator Claiborne Pell's grandson ran for the Senate seat and spent $3 million, which was more than all his opponents put together, 
and he came in third in the Democratic primary. And uh, I'm old enough to remember when John Connolly of Texas spent $20 million on a presidential run, and he only won a single delegate in South Carolina. So I'm less, I'm less sure that money is necessarily the problem, but I think that gerrymandering and the filibuster are real problems. Great. Thank you very much for those specific and concrete identification of Democratic vices that are challenging the Madisonian Senate. That's half of our homework assignment for this commission, in addition to analyzing the problem, and all of those are hugely helpful. Vic, I wonder, you know, you can react to Steve's uh, proposed reforms or add some of your own, but please begin by saying more about gerrymandering, so I understand it. Uh, Last year, the Constitution Center and Intelligence Squared held a great debate. Is gerrymandering destroying the political center? And driven by the arguments of Professor Nolan McCarty at Princeton, the audience in the end voted that it wasn't gerrymandering that was destroying the political center. It was the big sort and the fact that red and blue America is just living in different places, so no matter how you draw the districts, they're likely to be safe. So I wonder, t- t- and, and of course, this is coming up in the Gill case this year where the Supreme Court will decide the future of political gerrymandering. Tell us more about why you think that gerrymandering is leading to a kind of polarization that Madison would have abhorred and then add any other vices that you want to target, including explaining why you think that campaign finance reform is necessary for promoting deliberation. Sure. So let's first start with uh, gerrymandering. I, I begin by noting I don't think it's either or. The polarization that we see in the House and in Congress more generally is a function of self-sorting by uh, people along occupational and demographic lines with Democratic voters tending to cluster around large cities near bodies of water. Uh, I do uh, understand that red and blue America live in different uh, places, and as long as you're going to have states as uh, salient political divisions, then that's going to generate um, some uh, some uh, partisan separation. Uh, but at the same time, there are plenty of instances over the past several decades of state legislatures drawing district lines so as to either help incumbents. That was kind of uh, in the 70s and 80s. I think that was a big fear that, that uh, legislatures would draw district lines so that they as individuals would continue to get reelected. Uh, and that was bad enough. Uh, but since then, um, partly with the help of technology, the, the party that controls a legislature, even uh, by a small margin, can use uh, the drawing of district lines to leverage its majority position into an unassailable um, a supermajority. So, uh, you know, you take a state like Pennsylvania, which in the past 20 years has had you know, more Democrats than Republicans vote in statewide elections. Um, and yet, because the Republicans control the state legislature, they're able to draw lines such that they win 60% or more of the district. Uh, so I, I do think that, that gerrymandering is a part of the problem. And, I, I, and one reason why it's ever more a part of the problem, increasingly, is because computers and uh, data analysis and other uh, modern technology tools are enabling legislatures to uh, pack uh, political opponents and disperse their own slim majorities ever more efficiently. It used to be that if you wanted to guarantee you were going to win a majority of seats, you had to um, provide a, a bigger margin of victory in each district because y- there was y- you wanted to be on the safe side. 
But now that you can really get information about particular neighborhoods, particular voting patterns, um, you can be a lot more efficient about using a majority status in a legislature to basically entrench that majority status in the legislature uh, going forward. Um, now, uh, as to campaign finance, I do agree with Steve that um, there are instances where, where people with a lot of money don't necessarily win an election, but because the people who give money at the primary election stage, and Steve pointed out how much more important primaries are now than they ever used to be, tend to be people at opposing ends of the spectrum. Um, I, I think um, money in politics is also part of the problem, um, as is the big sort, your term, Jeff, and uh, is gerrymandering. So I would never go so far as to say, that individuals cannot self-finance their campaigns. But the Supreme Court has been particularly hostile to efforts by states to uh, experiment in public financing schemes. And forget Citizens United, because I think that a lot of people don't understand that case, and it really doesn't mean what people think it means. I'm not sure the court could have easily come out any other way in Citizens United, honestly. Um, but that's very different than the court's aversion to uh, common-sense public financing schemes uh, of the kind that, that Arizona and other states uh, have toyed around with. And that's another area where uh, initiatives, I think, can be helpful, um, because the people sometimes, uh, even, even if they happen to be red or blue, they tend to uh, distrust the elected officials in their own state, and they are a little bit more fair-minded about uh, how to draw district lines or how to regulate money in politics. And I'll, I'll end with this example. One of the best initiatives, I think, that has been adopted in recent years was one by Arizona in 2010 that took the job of drawing district lines away from the elected legislature and gave it to a newly created so-called independent citizen commission on districting. California has done the same thing. Florida has done a similar thing. And um, astonishingly to me, four justices would have voted to uh, invalidate that um, exercise of state sovereignty uh, on the theory that when Article 1, Section 4, that's the provision Steve referred to earlier, um, that gives um, Congress um, the power to regulate the times, place, and manner of federal elections, but in the first instance confers that power to the legislature of each state, that the term legislature in that provision refers to the standing elected legislature rather than the people of a state um, acting through their democratic processes. Happily, Justice Ginsburg and four other justices uh, rejected that contention and upheld Arizona's, um, uh, I think, laudable experimentation in this regard. But that doubles back to our earlier discussion of how direct democracy can be used to improve uh, deliberative um, decision-making at, at the state and federal levels. This is great. Thank you for those extremely thoughtful and, and, and really uh, concrete uh, explanations and suggestions for reform. Uh, let's turn to the presidency. Steve Madison originally wanted a president elected by the legislature. I know that because the National Constitution Center has just started <laughs> displaying James Wilson's original drafts of the Constitution, and in Wilson's uh, second draft... Uh, uh, published as late as August, you have a, 
legislative election of the president. But James Wilson pushed back. He wanted direct election of the president, and the compromise was the Electoral College. Tell us about Madison's conception of the presidency, how constrained by it was the con- how constrained by the Constitution was it, and how has the modern presidency diverged from sure, Madison's vision? Before I do that, I just want to quickly respond to a couple of things Vic said. Um, I think independent redistricting commissions in California and Arizona tend to be hijacked by Democratic Party elites, and I think that Republicans will never consider them to be a fair way of conducting redistricting based on my conversations with many Republicans. I do think that you could push through Congress a bill to require that districts be compact, and I think the courts could police a compactness requirement. Everyone is right now hoping the Supreme Court does something about gerrymandering, perhaps by enacting a compactness requirement. Uh, That is really a sad commentary on the state of our democracy. The framers did not expect the Supreme Court to figure out problems like gerrymandering. They expected Congress and the elected branches of the government to do it. So I would hope someone would propose a bill for compactness uh, in, in Congress and would act on it. With respect to the presidency, um, I think Madison was influenced by the writings of David Hume, And Hume, who was a conservative Tory English political philosopher of great ability, essentially believed that the people should elect a lower house, the lower house should elect an upper house, and then the two houses together should elect a president or a governor. And his idea was that that way the popular will would be filtered away and the governor or president or whatever the executive figure was, would be as neutral and nonpartisan as possible. Um, I think that that conception is mistaken. I think that um, legislative leaders like Tip O'Neill in the Reagan days, or Paul Ryan right now, or Nancy Pelosi, are often log rollers who are very, very uncharismatic and who cannot connect with the voters of the people, uh, cannot connect with the common people. And I think having popular selection of the president is very important because it makes the people really connect with the president. It causes people to really focus on presidential elections, uh, and it's tremendously valuable. That then raises the question of what about the Electoral College? Should we do away with the Electoral College and shift to direct election of the president? And I do not believe we should do away with the Electoral College because I think that there are huge federalism differences in different regions of the country. And I think if we elected a president who had um, 65 percent support in the Northeast and the Pacific Coast, and 30% support in the South, there would be uh, a real feeling of disenfranchisement. I don't think the Electoral College is by any means permanent. I would eliminate the office of electors. I would require the electoral votes go to the candidate who wins a majority in a particular state. 
But I actually do think the Electoral College as a filtering mechanism uh, works better than the national popular vote. If you eliminate the Electoral College, I'd much rather have the president be democratically elected than have him be elected by Congress, because I do think it produces leaders who connect directly with the public. In that respect, I would commend the system in France where they hold two elections for president. Uh, in the first election, all candidates can compete. And then in the second election, the top two vote-getters compete with each other, and whoever gets 51% is elected president of France. Uh, I think that would be a very desirable situation um, and um, uh, something worthy of uh, considering. Fascinating. Vic, uh, Madison on the presidency, we've just learned from Steve, did not want a direct election of the president, but had this complicated filtering mechanism. Uh, you've heard Steve on whether the Electoral College is uh, sensible today, and I want your thoughts there. Uh, and if you thought it's not, then how to address Madison's fear that a president who directly com uh, communicated with his constituents, as Madison said in Federalist 10, would encourage demagoguery. How can we reconstruct the sort of thoughtful filters that Madison thought were necessary to ensure the election of the best presidents rather than demagogues? Well, let's start by remembering that James Wilson's suggestion of a national direct election for president in 1787 was simply logistically unworkable in a world where you did not have anything remotely resembling modern transportation or communication. So the idea of someone running a national election before the railroad and before the telegraph would essentially mean that people would vote for their local son and there would be tremendous fragmentation among the electorate nationwide with nobody commanding uh, very uh, deep uh, or broad support. Now, all of that changed with the advent of the two political parties, because then you didn't have to be able to see or hear your presidential candidate to know whether you liked him because you liked the political party with which he was affiliated. So the real decision point was not 1787, but some years later in 1804 when we tweaked the Electoral College in the 12th Amendment, and I won't get into the technicalities of that, but that was the moment when a direct national election was plausible, and we rejected it. But here I want to interject something very, very important that often does not get addressed in 8th grade or 12th grade civics classes, and that is the role of slavery. Even at the founding, Madison said quite clearly that a national popular election for president would be a non-starter with the South. Why? Because the North had more voters but the South had more electors. Why is that? Because remember, before the, uh, the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendments, Southern states got credit in the House of Representatives representation formula for their slaves, albeit at a three-fifths discount, so that Virginia had fewer free persons and fewer voters in Pennsylvania, but it had considerably more electors in the Electoral College. That is why for 32 of the first 36 years after the Constitution is ratified, you have a white slave-owning Virginian in the White House. So the Electoral College was not just a compromise between large states and small states and the like. It was a pre-Civil War nod to uh, uh, bringing the country together, trying to, to keep the country unified uh, and not break apart over this contentious issue of slavery. 
And then that begs the question, well, after we have gotten rid of slavery and after we have um, communication and transportation such that a national popular election is possible, why don't we move in that direction? Now, Steve mentions federalism and the idea that you, want, you don't want candidates that are incredibly popular in some parts of the country but not other parts. Two things about that. We've actually had plenty of that under the current system. Abraham Lincoln was not on the ballot in, in all the southern states. Um, in modern elections, you have 60-40 spreads between the southern uh, red block and the, the coastal blue block. And if the real objective were to guarantee some kind of minimal acceptability across the country, then I think a system where we said to become president, you have to have at least 35 or 37 percent of the vote in two-thirds of the 50 states, that would be a more direct way of accomplishing that objective. But the Electoral College doesn't do that uh, in theory or in practice. Finally, um, and I double back to initiatives uh, again, there is this very powerful movement called the National Popular uh, Vote Compact Movement in which states are agreeing with each other to give their electors not to the candidate who wins the most votes in that particular state, but instead to the candidate who wins the most popular votes nationwide. So you need states comprising 270 electors um, uh, for this agreement to go into effect and for it to, it, 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 in practice, bring about a national popular election. And as of now, about 11 states, including the District of Columbia as a state, have signed on to this compact, um, uh, uh, totaling 165 electors. So they're more than halfway towards the goal of 270. And there are a few states like Oregon that are likely to adopt the measure via an initiative device in the same way that they moved in the direction of popular election of U.S. senators uh, with an initiative device. So this is another example of how if you agree with me, and I, I understand that Steve does not, that uh, getting rid of the Electoral College is a sensible thing to do in the 21st century, that popular direct democracy can play an important role in helping bring that about. Okay, this is so fascinating and such a great debate. I think we only have time for one more branch, but I'm eager. I'm, I'm almost inclined to let you choose, but I'm going to say, Steve, I want to hear you on Madison and the judiciary, and you've thought so much about this, but Madison thought a lot about the judiciary, and in particular, he was concerned that the supremacy clause would guarantee that the federal judiciary could resolve federalism questions presented to the Supreme Court in the exercise of its functions. Um, a huge question, but tell us what Madison thought that the role of the federal judiciary would be and how the modern judiciary has sure. diverged or um, supported that view. Before I do that, let me just say uh, I agree with everything Vic says about the Electoral College having its origins in slavery. I think that's indisputably true. Um, and But I think it's useful for a whole other set of reasons today, and it's a set that I haven't mentioned so far, which is that Right now, we count the national vote in 50 separate states with 50 separate election officials. And I fear if we had a national popular vote for president, that it would end up like the 2000 presidential election. And you'd have very close races, and then suddenly 13,000 votes would pop up in Minnesota, pushing one person ahead. And then 20,000 popular votes would turn up in Texas, pushing the other person ahead. And I think the potential for corruption of the counting of the vote 
would be a serious problem, whereas under the current mechanism, the 50 states count the vote separately. But that's not the question you asked me. So turning to Madison and the judiciary, um, I think that Madison changed his mind about the judiciary over the course of his life. I think he didn't really have as high expectations and hopes for it as a young man as he did as an older man. Um, he wrote a famous letter in 1834, and uh, in that letter, he said, it's true as an abstract matter that the legislature and the executive and the courts are all co-equal interpreters of the Constitution, and thus as an abstract matter, he endorsed an idea called departmentalism, which both of you will be familiar with, but which our listeners might not be. It's the idea that all three branches play a role in constitutional interpretation. But then Madison went on in this 1833 letter to say that because of briefing and oral argument, because of the small size of the Supreme Court compared to the House of Representatives and the Senate, because of the scholarly way in which the judges assess cases and hear cases, Madison said in 1834 that the Supreme Court, quote, when happily filled, will be the surest and most reliable expositor of the meaning of the Constitution. Now, of course, everyone's idea of when the Supreme Court is happily filled is not necessarily the same as everyone else's. But I think Madison came, particularly during the Jacksonian period, when Jackson and demagoguery were afoot, Madison really came to admire John Marshall and Joseph Story and what the court had become. And the other thing is, you mentioned at the outset of our conversation that Madison's biggest disappointment at Philadelphia was that he never got a congressional veto on state laws, and he lobbied for that again and again, and repeatedly he lost. And, but in the end, the federal courts, through the Supremacy Clause, have gotten a veto on state laws that are wildly divergent from the national norm. So, for example, I don't know if Vic would agree with me on this or not, but the Supreme Court in the 19th century struck down polygamy in Utah and said it was too divergent from the practice in the rest of the country to be consistent. Uh, other instances of the court reigning in states exist in abundance. Uh, there are a lot of Supreme Court cases involving Louisiana because it's the only state that has a civil law legal system pulling Louisiana into conformity with the other states. So I think the federal courts do serve a very important function in checking factionalism in politics, in checking the president in particular, and preventing him from becoming a dictator. Um, it's a fact that most, most two-term presidents now only get two appointments to the Supreme Court. That means seven Supreme Court justices are picked by other presidents than the incumbent. And those seven watch over the president very closely and strike down things that he does that are excessive, as happened with George W. Bush in the War on Terror. Great. Vic, uh, last word to you on Madison and the judiciary. What did he and the founders expect, and what would they think of what we've got? Sure. First, let me just close the loop on the Electoral College. 
I fully agree with Steve that if we're going to have a national popular election, we need a national ballot that's nationally counted. Uh, it's true that uh, if you had 50 separate states uh, doing it 50 different ways, you could have a disaster uh, in a close election. But under the current system, we had a disaster in Florida in 2000, even though the national popular vote tally was quite clear. Whether it was 2 million, 3 million, 4 million, everyone knew that Al Gore had more votes nationally. So I think if this national popular vote idea gets over the top, and I've written a lot about this, so if listeners are remotely interested, they can Google my name and national popular vote. You'll find law review articles and lay essays about this uh, to your heart's content. If enough states join on, then I think Congress ought to step in, and I think it has the power to do so, um, to pass a law that would provide a standardized ballot and a standardized way of counting. Moving to the judiciary. you know, at the founding, as you pointed out, Jeff, they would have thought that the Congress was the, the most dangerous branch and that the judiciary was the least dangerous branch, as Alexander Hamilton said. Um, today, I think the president is probably the most dangerous branch because changes in globalization and technology and warfare combined with changes in the way we elect the president to make him close to popularly elected today, the reality is Most often, the person who gets the most votes nationally does win the Electoral College. So we tend to think of the president as the people's president in a way that's not true for any other member of the federal government. Those two factors have really combined to move a lot of important power into uh, into the White House. And maybe that's good, maybe that's bad, but it's, I think, probably a different expectation than the founders would have had. As to the judiciary... Um, you know, I think it's really the 14th Amendment and the Reconstruction uh, era uh, that ushers in a much broader extension of individual rights uh, to be applied now against the states that opens up a much bigger role for the federal judiciary uh, to act as that check that Madison never got over the states with regard uh, to uh, uh, um, uh, um, Congress. So, you know, if I would identify a single way in which the founders probably would be frustrated by the way the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary operate today, it might be this. Life tenure was designed to insulate the justices from political partisan considerations, but it hasn't really done that. It has telescoped all of the partisan machinations into the front and back ends when presidents appoint someone in the first instance and when that individual decides to retire and bequeath his seat to a particular occupant of the White House. So uh, just as with a presidential election, I'm in favor of exploring ways of preserving the independence of the federal judiciary, but by shortening the terms, especially of Supreme Court justices, so that presidents aren't appointing people in their 40s today who are going to serve for 50, 60 years as life expectancies um, uh, uh, expand. Uh, and uh, and then choose when they're going to retire and who they're going to give their seat to, because I think it has tremendously politicized the Supreme Court in a way that is unhealthy alongside all these other developments that we've been talking about. Can, can I just agree with that, Jeff? Uh, I've, I've published a law review article arguing for 18-year term limits for Supreme Court justices with the court fixed at nine seats, with one seat coming open every two years, and with the Senate obliged to vote within 10 days of a presidential nomination on the nominee. 
So I think that's an area where Vic and I are in agreement. Exactly. Well, that is great. And this conversation has tremendously whet my appetite for what's going to be uh, extremely educational uh, years of debate about the Madisonian Constitution and how we can resurrect it. We do have short closing statements on the We the People podcast. And uh, uh, Steve, the first one is to you to give Vic the last word. Uh, if you had to pick one aspect of our current presidency, Congress, courts, and media that Madison would be most distressed about, what would it be, and what can we do about it? I think Madison, I agree with Vic. I think that um, if Madison were looking at the Constitution today, he would think the executive branch is the most dangerous branch, not the legislature. And I think we do need to curb presidential powers. Uh, I'm in favor of a bill that's passed the House of Representatives called the RAINS Act, which requires that any regulation that affects the economy by more than $100 million has to be presented to Congress to be acted on fast-track status with no filibuster and then presented to the president for his signature. So I think reigning in presidential power is the thing that Madison would probably consider to be the most important thing. I think he would also be very concerned about gerrymandering and the level of partisanship in the House, and I think he would favor a compactness requirement for House districts. Uh, I think uh, Madison was a majoritarian, and I think he would have found elements of the filibuster and the whole system in the Senate to be problematic as well. So I think he would certainly have found things... Uh, to criticize, and um, uh, those would be the things that I'd, I'd identify. Fascinating. Vic, last word to you. What is the aspect or aspects of our modern presidency, Congress, courts, or media that Madison would be most troubled about, and what can we do about them? Well, I'm not sure I can, I can accurately channel uh, Madison, but let me um, agree with what Steve said, and also... Uh, Put another related point on the table that we've been nibbling around um, that I don't know if Steve agrees with it or not, but it dovetails with a, a lot of what we've been talking about. As Steve pointed out earlier, Madison thought that political party was not synonymous with faction because of its breadth and its fluidity and because it was such a big, uh, a big tent. Um, Madison, like the other framers, expected members of the judiciary and of Congress to have a certain degree of institutional loyalty that would trump partisan affiliation and loyalty. So people back then would be thinking of themselves as senators who happen to be Democrats um, and the like. I think the biggest difference I perceive since I went to law school in the late 80s compared to today is the extent to which partisanship trumps institutional affiliation and loyalty in Washington, D.C. If you think back to the Watergate episode and how a rogue president was reined in then, he was reined in because Republicans in Congress thought of themselves as members of a co-equal watchdog branch, and they blew the whistle on him. And today, you just don't see uh, many people of either party willing to buck um, a White House occupant of the same party, uh, and if we're gonna if we're gonna bring the power of the presidency in uh, the way Steve talked about, I think Congress is going to have to get in touch with its own institutional identity above and beyond partisan affiliation. 
Thank you so much, Vic Amar and Steve Calabresi, for a really bracing, illuminating, provocative uh, discussion, which has completely wet my appetite and I hope has wet the appetite of our great We the People listeners for more learning and more education about the Madisonian Constitution and how we can resurrect it today. Stay tuned for podcasts, panels, traveling debates across America, meetings of our spectacular Madisonian Commission, and white papers, as well as a new website. There's much learning to do, and uh, Steve and Vic have started us off magnificently. Happy Constitution Day. And Vic, Steve, thank you so much for joining. Thank you both very much. Thank you so much for having us. Today's show is engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Ogana Etze and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Ogana Etze and Lana Ulrich. Continue today's conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR. Sign up to receive Constitution Weekly, our email roundup of constitutional news and debate at bit.ly forward slash Constitution Weekly. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast, Live at America's Town Hall, on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. And finally, despite our inspiring congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support. We rely on the support, engagement, passion, love for lifelong learning of all of you great We the People listeners. So go to the website. Click on Donate, I guess, is what you have to click to do. But it's not donating that I want you to do. It's that I want you to join and engage and become a member of the National Constitution Center so you can get our great collateral and content and be a member of this community of lifelong learners. So go to constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.